Welcome and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I'm Marvin Telemontis, the pastor of River Rock Fellowship. Hope this inspires you and builds up your faith and helps you to see that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Well, have you ever wondered, is there any bill larger than a $100 bill? Well, in 1945, the Fed made a $500 bill with the picture of President McKinley on it, on the front, and it was discontinued in 1969, along with the $1,000 bill and the $5,000 bill. It was eliminated for obvious reasons for lack of usage. I mean, if they would have given to me, I would have used them all up, no no problem. (laughs) The truth is, did you know if somebody was still to have a 5000 1000 or 5000 bill, because they collected them all up, but if it's still out there, it is still legal tenor today. Isn't that amazing? Well, now, there is no $200 bill, despite popular usage of George Bush on the picture of the bill. And a matter of fact, there was this gal that went into Hemphill Township, Pennsylvania. And she bought some girl clothes from the fashion store. It was actually called the Fashion Bug. She bought some clothes, used a $200 bill. They gave her back change for almost about $100 bills. So she got free clothes and almost $100 out the door. Then there was at this Dairy Queen there in Kentucky, a man walked in, bought a couple of ice creams, and gave a $200 bill with George George Bush on there. And they gave back $196 change. They caught that guy, and he was busted. Sometimes counterfeits are really effective. And they can do all sorts of damage. As you probably know, the real U.S. currency has a number of features on it designed to make it hard to counterfeit. Some of you remember back in the day when the picture of the president was in dead center. Now it's off center. Now you notice there's a little strip. You put it under ultraviolet and you can actually see it glow. On that strip will be the number, if it's a 20, a 50, a 100, it will be on there. Also, there's these little numbers, if you got to use a magnifying glass, and you'll see written on those in the white space, the actual number of that currency. I used to be a cashier back in the day when I was in college. A lot of times I get a $100 bill and I would have to test it. So I get a piece of white paper, put my finger on the corner, and I would scrape it across. If the ink came off, it was real. If it didn't come off, I knew it was fake. I did catch a few of them counterfeits. They got mad at me. You got to use this. I said, man, take it back to the bank, wherever you got it from. You'd be glad if I give it back to you. But we had to deal with counterfeits. There are also several other kinds of counterfeit. There's also the counterfeit of products. You know, companies spend tons of money on branding, making their unique identity of their company onto their brand. So why? So it makes it harder for another company to make what's called a knockoff. A multi-billion dollar industry. 
There was one company that was selling down jackets, designer down jackets online. They investigated and found out they didn't have goose down. They had chicken feathers that had just been swept up in those warehouses. They were never even cleaned. I'll let you figure out the rest of the part of the story. Another problem involves counterfeit medication. Did you know there's counterfeit medication? That which you have no idea if the correct medicine is even in the medicine on the label. Or is it diluted? See, counterfeit is a federal crime. Not just with money, with product, with all sorts of things. Even a license. Such as people presuming to be a doctor when they're not. You see, in the same way, when you think about counterfeitism, we can be fooled by counterfeit religion. To be more specific, we could be in danger of having counterfeit faith. You know, the Webster Dictionary says that counterfeit is something not genuine, but made to resemble and pass for something valuable. Isn't that a good definition? So therefore, the fair question to ask, are there any counterfeit Christians? Many in the world think so. You probably heard people say, hypocrite. And you go to church. Jesus actually confronted that. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7. We'll start at verse 20. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. What's he trying to say? You can tell whether they're counterfeit or real just by the fruit in their character, in their life. Verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Wow. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. And this is what Jesus will say, but I will reply, I never knew you. Isn't that interesting? What's he trying to say? You never had relationship with me. You did all the church stuff. But you and I were not real. We had no relationship together. Get away from me. You who break God's laws. If a counterfeit is something that is not genuine, but that deliberately tries to resemble or pass as though if real, then Jesus is saying that there are counterfeits in the faith. You know, there was a guy named Simon the sorcerer, he was a fake in the New Testament. There were those in Egypt who were able to do the exact same miracle that Moses did. They put down, he put down a staff, turned a snake, they did the same thing. But praise God for, for Moses' snake, it ate theirs. I love that part. 
Jesus clearly is telling us that counterfeit Christianity will never hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in and share in your master's happiness. Won't happen for counterfeits. Now, I don't want to be a counterfeit Christian. And I hope I'm safe to assume that we and that you do not want to be a counterfeit Christian. In fact, I would really rather be able to approach the end of my life with the confidence of the Apostle Paul who said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. How about you? A faithful servant is what God called Moses in the Old Testament. A faithful servant. And today Moses stands out as one of the most righteous and greatest leaders in all of recorded biblical history. But you know and I know that Moses didn't start off that way. In fact, when it comes to making excuses to God, he's probably number one. Moses sounded a lot like a lot of Christians do today. And yet God was finally able to count on Moses. And I believe that the astounding characteristics of Moses' life and that transformation is there and available for me and for you today. Moses was committed to serving God. It didn't take him long to discover that God specialized in doing the impossible. The more Moses was willing to do what God said, the more God made the impossible happen. God helped Moses overcome these incredible obstacles in his life. He had three major obstacles in his life, and we're going to look at those today. Let's look at number one. God helped Moses overcome tremendous obstacles. And number one was his feeling of an inferiority, of inadequacies, of being insecure. When God said, Moses, I want to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt, the first thought that Moses came up was, um, I object. I, I, I need to protest that. Now remember, he has been in the palace. And from the palace, because he murdered somebody, he ends up out in the pasture. From the palace to the pasture, and there he becomes a shepherd for 40 years. I'm telling you, I don't think he thinks he's got an Ivy League education now. He had the best education in the world for the first 40 years. Now he spent another 40 years. Now he's 80 years old. And he's like, whoa, 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 time out. So let's look and see what he says to about God's idea of going to Pharaoh, who would have been his adopted brother because he himself was adopted into the family. Exodus 3, verse 11. But Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, he's not done yet. So let's go a couple verses down. Verse 13. But Moses protested. 
If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? Then they should, then what should I tell them? And by the way, the answer was, I am that I am. Then we get into chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 1. Do you think the guy's done protesting yet? Nope. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Do you see? This guy's got a reason for everything not to obey what God clearly is telling him what to do. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, now he's pleaded. But Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now. Even the sheep would walk away from me. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Do you hear Moses? Do you hear what he's saying? Who am I, God? I'm a nobody. They won't listen to me. And besides, I'm not very eloquent. I wouldn't make a good spokesperson. Send somebody else. My brother Aaron, he looks really good. Let's go with that. I wonder how often Satan has used your feelings, my feelings, of being insecure, of being inadequate, of feeling inferior. And we knew God wanted us to do this, wanted us to do that, and we backed off, and we protested, and we pleaded with God. Not me. Use somebody else. Moses said, I can't speak. I can't lead. Yet when he let God lead the way, and when Moses followed God's commands, it wasn't long before Pharaoh said, okay, for real, take your people and go. Ten plagues. But who won? God. Do you struggle with insecurity? A feeling of inadequacy? Do you feel inferior? The answer is to let God lead the way. And to follow His command. If you didn't know this, one of the most common things about pastors is we're all super insecure. But we make it look good that you don't know. If in doubt, just talk to the wife. It's true. Why? We feel the weight. We feel the burden. There's no way I could do what I do on my own, in my own power, in my own strength. There's too much at stake. So I get Moses. I'm not ripping on him. The dude's got two million people in his church. That's a big responsibility. So here's the second obstacle Moses faced. And it was two million grumbling Hebrews. Murmur, griping, complaining. 
They weren't even two days out of Egypt and they were already whining and griping and complaining. They weren't even through, well, how are we going to get across the Red Sea now? What did you bring us out here for? Nobody brought any sunscreen either. This is horrible. <laughs> Moses, what's your plan for getting us across the sea? And Moses answered, I don't have a plan. God just told me to follow the pillar by day and the cloud by the, the cloud by the pillar by night and the, and the cloud by day. Um, you mean you led us all out of Egypt and you don't have a map, you don't have a location, you don't have a compass? Are you kidding me? Hey Moses, hey, what's on the menu for today? We're kind of hungry. I think we'd like some hamburger steak, some carne asada. What do you got? You could pass on the sushi, though. What are we going to eat? I mean, back at home, we had melons. We had cucumbers. We had meat, links, onions. Come on, we're hungry. It's hot out here, and our throats are so parched. Constant complaining. The people were grumbling. Moses spent a lot of time talking to God about them. I imagine Moses became discouraged many times over. Mom, it kind of would feel this way. You make a really great dinner and nobody likes it. You want to take the pan and hit them upside the head with it. Moses had to deal with that. And God strengthened him through it all. It was part of being prepared. It was preparatory school. The third thing that Moses had to deal with was his own stubborn will. Moses started off pretty good, but gradually it overtook him. So here's the good part. Let's look at Exodus 15, verse 24 and 25. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. Not a good day. What are, you what are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and it made the water from bitter to good, right? From bitter to sweet. So it made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to Him. Now, we're still doing the complaining thing. Let's get to verse uh, chapter 16, verse 3. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. Don't you just want to slap these people? They moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. So finally, Moses, he's not real happy. And let's pick up how he handles their complaining again in chapter 17, verse 2. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Now, if I was to do a correct theological translation, a good eschatology of this phrase with the word quiet, I could give it to you in a theological voice, and it would say, shut up! That's what Moses was saying. He had had it. 
He said, shut up! I'm sorry, Mom, I used the S word in church, but I think we got the point across. He was really, really mad. Moses replied, why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? Did you catch that? When I gripe and murmur and complain to God, I am testing Him. And so are you. We don't catch that. We think we have a right to complain. I know I do. Then the rest of you that don't, I'll pray for you. But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Wow. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt? Why are you trying to kill us, our children, our livestock, with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Whoo! This is a bad day. This is a bad day. And one day Moses said to the Lord, the people are complaining because there's not enough water. And God said, all right, Moses, go over to that rock and just speak to that rock and I'll bring out water. But Moses is having a fit. He's losing it. So in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, a lot of text, but I just find that when you read the whole story, it just it comes across so much more powerful. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. So he's grieving. His sister has passed. There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and his brother Aaron. The people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people to this wilderness to die, along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This plan has no grain. This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. That's what real men of God do. When there's a great need, they pray. They fall on their face before God. They don't go to a conference. They don't go to the YouTube and find something special. What's trendy? And the Lord said to Moses, excuse me, then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff, the, the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, catch this, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. Did you hear, hear the instruction? It's, he just said, speak. Speak. That's all you got to do. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept 
before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels! Whoa! That would grab my attention. He shouted, Must we bring you water from this rock? Now catch this. This is where he messes up. This is where he blows it. Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness, my heart. I'm their father. I care for them. I love them. And I want them to see in this moment how I will, as a mother hen would care for her chicks, I want them to see me. But you showed wrath. You showed anger. And not at this moment did I want that to be shown. You will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. This place was known as the waters of Meribah, which means arguing. Because there the people of Israel argued with the Lord, and there He demonstrated His holiness among them. So Moses went over to the rock, and in the midst of it all, Moses lost his temper. Have you ever lost your temper? He let the Israelites know just what he thought of them. And their constant criticism. And their constant complaining. And their constant comparing. We had it so much better in Israel where we were slaves. Murmuring, griping, complaining. Picking, picking, nagging, nagging. And instead of just speaking to the rock as he was instructed, he struck it twice. The water came out all right. But instead of showing the people how much God loves them, he showed them how God and his wrath could be so angry. You see, in the Old Testament, many people said that was the God out there. Moses, you go up the mountain, not me. I don't want to go up there. I'll stay down here far away. Because if God gets mad, I understand what God can do. He can open up the earth and people fall in and that's it. They're gone. And I know I've seen fire come down from heaven like in Sodom and Gomorrah. I I don't want that kind. No, 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 no. You, You prophet, you go. Leave me here. And God's wanting them to see that He's a loving and caring God. Not just a God of wrath. And he blew it. He really, really blew it. I've blown it. I've really, really blown it. How about you? I could be the only one in this room, and I'll just raise my hand. By the way, the rest of you don't raise your hands. You blew it because you didn't raise your hand. It was a misrepresentation of who God was. And for whatever reason, I wonder how many in the body of Christ reject 
God's will. They reject God's way. They reject God's timing. And God gives us His plan. He gives us His program. And He says, now this is my will and this is my, in the way I want it done. But sometimes we complain and we gripe and we murmur. Maybe not out loud, but in our heart. I've been there. And like Moses, I feel like it's over. I'm not going to get into the promised land. Have you ever been in a place where you feel like, I'm just too old now? I've, I've so messed up, like, I'm not going to get in. I'm not going to see that victory. I'm not going to see that joy. Moses faced three massive obstacles. The feeling of inadequacy. Difficult people. And his own stubbornness. And yet God helped him through it all. Now maybe in your life you lost it. Maybe you blew it. And like Moses, you too feel like there's no promised land for you or for your family. Well, I have some really good news for you today. Your service will be remembered and rewarded by God. If all we remember about Moses is when he struck the rock, we miss what God saw. We missed how he went to Pharaoh. We miss how he did the ten plagues. We miss the Red Sea. We miss the manna, the quail. We miss all those times that he went to the rock and God brought water. More than once. We miss all of his wonderful service for the cause of Christ and for the kingdom of our King. We miss it. He doesn't forget. God remembers He was 80 years old when he started his thing as leader of the Hebrews. Can you imagine? Finally, they get to the promised land. 40 more years out in the desert. My goodness. On the border of the promised land. High on the mountain. And there, as he looks across, he gets to see the land of milk and honey. He gets right up to the edge. He gets to see it all. How beautiful it is. But I, I won't go. Joshua, take him and worship the Lord when you get there. He doesn't get to go. How often it seems that it's that way. David made all the preparations, gathered all the materials, but he didn't get allowed to build the temple. Somebody else. Solomon did. Elijah did all these incredible things. Prayed no rain and there was no rain. Prayed and then rain did come. It went one man versus 450 prophets of Baal. By the way, those guys were originally Hebrews. And he faces them all. One versus 450. And who wins? God's man wins. Fire from heaven comes down. But he gets afraid of Jezebel. 
And God takes him home. Let's Elisha finish the work of the prophet. Over and over again. God says, you get to do all the preparatory work and somebody else gets to do the glory run. It's kind of like the lineman in football. You make the big hole and some dude runs across and does that crazy dance and he gets all the celebration part. And all the linemen go, really? You get to do the dance? It would only have been human for Moses to wonder if his lifelong service for the Lord and His people would ever be remembered or rewarded. Then one day, in a different century, think about it, in a completely different century, on a different mountain, Jesus was transfigured. And Moses was there too. And so was Elijah. Let's read it in Matthew 17, verse 1 to 3. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and, and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that His face shone like the sun and, the clo- and His clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses... And Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Not very many people got to be in both places, the Old and the New Testament, in person. But these two guys did. They thought it was over. No promised land. No no fulfilling the call. And God brings them. I know you didn't make it in the promised land. Well, here, why don't you have a little meeting with my boy here before we go to the cross? Wow. So there's Moses, and he he sees Elijah, and he sees Christ, and and he sees the disciples there. Can, Can you imagine what he must have been thinking? Oh, Lord, how awesome in all your glory you are. My God, oh, oh, how it really was worth it all. All the sacrifices, the suffering, the heartaches, the loneliness, the cold nights out there with the sheep, the pain. Oh, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. Even not going into the promised land. I don't even care. But the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration will be nothing compared to the glory when we see Him face to face. When we see Him on His throne and we gather there with with Moses, with Elijah and Peter and James and John and all the rest of them. And we will know that it's worth it. You see, Jesus has never called us to a life of ease, but to a life of service. So as His followers, may may we keep on serving. May we keep on working for the cause of Christ. May we keep on giving time, talent, treasure. May we keep giving Him our heart. You know, when you're in 
at a season of life and you're elderly, it's easy to look back. Does anybody remember? Anybody remember how many VBSs I did? Anybody remember how many camps? How many nights I stayed up late? How many overnighters I did? Anybody remember how many of these things I cut? And how many beans I had to count to put in that little paper plate thing and then staple it? Does anybody remember how many times I shook hands and said good morning when I didn't think it was myself? Does anybody remember how many people I prayed for? Does it even matter? Oh, child of God, it does. And he's got perfect records. And I know you didn't do it for reward. I know you didn't do it for recognition. But he will. Keep your heart. Keep it right. And don't give up now. You've gone too far. Don't look back. Look at his glory. Why? The rest will all make sense if you look at his glory. There's a beautiful hymn expresses our anticipation for heaven. It says, And we shall behold him. We shall behold him. Face to face in all of his glory. Oh, we shall behold him. We shall behold him. Face to face, our Savior and our Lord. Church, it is so worth it all. God remembers all you've done. And He will reward all of us. His will, His way, His time. But for us, let's stay the course. Well, we hope this message helps you to take your next step closer to Jesus. Here's a great question to ask yourself right now. How will I be different because of what I just heard today? Well, for more info about us, go to rrf.church or find us on Facebook. I'm Pastor Marvin thanking you for taking the time to join us.